Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies. Oeuvre. Oeuvre episode. Easy for you to say. The Third Age of Steven Spielberg. This podcast will comprise of uh, his career 1989 to 1993. Uh, a lot packed in there. We start with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Always Hook. Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. Quite a series of films, Matthew. Not insignificant that this is the third episode in a six-part series, each of which will comprise five films, so that means that this is the halfway point of the series and of the man's career, right? More or less, there's some there's some cheating here and there with the, the ages we have set up. Uh, it's averaging five per age five films per age but we've cheated a little bit but that's okay that's okay you know we're trying to fit them into somewhat thematic buckets here and this one was tough but i think it makes a whole lot of sense when you when you look at it as a you know as a full oeuvre a full filmography yeah this is the turning point i think i think for the man i really think that you you know you can draw a you know bc ad line in the sand before and after Schindler's List. Yeah, I think you're I think you're probably right there. I mean, you titled this in, in the initial email that, that went out uh, like a year ago <laughs> when we decided to do this. Call this Peter Pan Grows Up. And yeah. I think that is absolutely true. I mean, if you look at the last list of, uh, of, of the second age of Spielberg, the, the one we talked about last time, uh, we had Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Color Purple, and Empire of the Sun. And what's interesting about that is the final two movies are Spielberg putting on his big boy pants really for the first <laughs> time, right? It's yeah. Him doing adult, quote-unquote, adult movies to varying degrees of success. You know, I think what we see in this third age is him figuring out what it means to do adult movies, what it means to him to do adult movies, and, and how best to approach those kinds of uh, subject matters. And he has to go, he really clearly had to go completely to the in the opposite direction right he had to go to maybe the most family friendly i don't know between hook and jurassic park he really went to the opposite extreme in terms of going populist child friendly and then making the biggest most populous hit of his career before he could truly go into quote-unquote adult filmmaking and make his masterpiece and clearly the most adult film he had ever made up to that point probably still probably ever will for that matter He'll probably never make a more serious film than Schindler's List. I mean, you. I mean, you can't make a more serious <laughs> film right. than Schindler's List, right? Like that's it, it would literally it'd be completely impossible. It's the most serious subject matter you can possibly cover in a in a motion picture. Let, let's start where we left off. Um, Empire of the Sun is a movie that we both adore. You know, mm-hmm. young Christian Bale, adult subject matter. It's an extremely good movie. A sort of weird movie within his filmography, just because of how sort of. It's not like it's poorly regarded, but it's it was one of his most sort of ignored movies of, of the 80s and sort of weirdly sort of flew under the radar, right? Far less ever, you know, positive reputation than The Color Purple, which was still nominated for all these Oscars and things. I think I mentioned last time that I think it's a vastly superior film to The Color Purple, but it is considered to be one of his sort of outlier films, I guess, like one of the redheaded stepchildren of his filmography. Although important to point out that, you know, still 
technically financially successful, which is not insignificant. But I think he was rattled a little bit after that experience. I get the impression that it was a very tough shoot, um, Mm -hmm. that he put a lot of eggs into that particular basket, and that after, you know, it sort of wasn't as critically or commercially embraced or embraced by the Academy for that uh, matter. I think he was maybe looking to get back to the drawing board a little bit after that. Yeah. It's, you know, you wonder about his responses to, you almost get the feeling that for him sort of being ignored is worse than like an out and out flop or trying something that just absolutely doesn't work, which he's never really had. I think that's important to point out too. I mean, we could probably crunch the numbers on the BFG, Mm -hmm. which was shockingly expensive. And we'll certainly get to that here in a couple of episodes, but I don't believe he has ever technically had a film that didn't at least break even. Crazy for somebody who's made upwards of 30 films. You know, the man does not make flops. Yeah, maybe flop in the yeah in, in the literal sense of the word is not what I mean. But in terms of critical flops, right? Yeah. Um, he, you know, he doesn't need to uh, keep producing to keep <laughs> making movies, right? He's fucking Steven Spielberg. In terms of just Empire of the Sun not being a huge hit, you know, you wonder where he was going to go from there, and where he did is a movie called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is a, a palate cleanser. And when you look at the production history of The Last Crusade, this was a long germinating movie. It went through countless story changes and script changes and screenwriters and and just ideas for what the premise was going to be. When you look into the backstory of Last Crusade, the main motivator here was A, to wrap up the trilogy that they had set out to make, and B, to atone for what Spielberg felt was the failings of Temple of Doom, which I think we both agree is is sort of silly because Temple of Doom is underrated and yeah, really really good. I think. Yeah, I think time time has been kind to that movie. Although it seems like when Spielberg's interviewed about it, he still concedes or he still maintains that he's not satisfied with it and he feels it was a failure. Critical reevaluation of it has been positive. And, uh, and yeah, I think people our age tend to still really respond to that movie. And I personally think that the quality order of the films goes in chronological order, at least in terms of how they were made. Of course, we talk about how Temple of Doom was a prequel, yada, yada. But I think that, it, you know, Raiders is clearly the best film in the trilogy. And then there's pretty, you know, wide margin <laughs> between one and two. And then I think Temple of Doom and Last Crusade are basically right about the same level. I think Temple of Doom is ever so slightly better, but I think Last Crusade is still really, really solid. In terms of like this palate cleanser element you're talking about, he and Lucas clearly felt like they needed to get back to the drawing board, like they needed to return to the original in terms of tone. Mm -hmm. And so they did a lot, they made a lot of decisions to try and remind audiences how this whole thing had started in the first place. Yeah, it's clear that they wanted to return to Raiders of the Lost Ark and and give, give the audiences more of what that movie meant and you know it's crazy to to read about the potential like premises for the, for what this movie could have been yeah uh, i just want to read this this sentence from wikipedia in september 1984 lucas completed an eight-page treatment titled indiana jones and the monkey king which he soon followed with an 11-page outline the story saw indiana jones battling a ghost in scotland before finding the fountain of youth from there like the different iterations of, of the script involved a lot of ghost fighting and even the death of Indiana Jones and his subsequent uh, resurrection, you know, almost gets more ridiculous from there. (laughs) There are parts of me that wish we had seen something 
maybe a little more batshit crazy. I don't know. For, for me, the most interesting parts of Indiana Jones have, have never been the supernatural aspects. It's just been sort of the, the more gritty treasure hunting aspects. And I think they realized that and, you know, ended up with a script by, was it Mark Bohm or Jeffrey Bohm? Jeffrey Bohm, yeah. Jeffrey Bohm. Yeah. I, I think to your point, that is the biggest failing of the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And yes. that it, it like is willing to go much further into crazy supernatural even extraterrestrial territory and as a result like its feet leave the ground it becomes almost kind of like weightless and doesn't carry nearly as much of the sort of like emotional resonance as particularly raiders and last crusade do yeah exactly i you know i'm obviously of the opinion that they should have stopped at three but i think one of the many problems with kingdom of the crystal skull is that lucas especially was compelled to explore so many of these conceptual things that they had worked through and then abandoned before they made the last crusade you get the impression that these guys had so many ideas that were sort of like put into a drawer during this whole Mm -hmm. process that they just they they can't help but hear that telltale heart beating you know they just they gotta break out that uh chris columbus script for example you know yeah whether it be the monkey king or indiana jones and the flying saucer people or whatever yeah yeah. they gotta you know they gotta (laughs) like use every single piece of the buffalo I, I mean, I think The Last Crusade is really miraculous in how it manages to sort of balance the supernatural stuff while really being mostly a an incredibly satisfying drama about a father and son finally learning, learning to communicate with one another. Yeah, I mean, watching it this last time and sort of realizing what the motivations were in terms of, you know, going away from Temple of Doom and really embracing... Uh, what made Raiders of the, of the Lost Ark such a hit was that it, if it just feels way safer to me, and it's it's way cheesier and sort of wackier. I'm not appalled, but like disappointed by how cheesy it was watching this movie through the, through, through the guise of his filmography. Oh, really? And yeah, I I just thought it didn't land like all the, all the jokey stuff and a lot of the uh, Sean Connery stuff and, and even some of the set pieces like just jokey shit thrown thrown in there where I, I sort of got taken out of the of the realism and grittiness of the movie and you know I had been watching these movies in in, in pretty quick sequence you know um, and I do agree with you that the movies are you know the quality of the movies is chronological Raiders of the Lost Ark and the huge gap between Temple of Doom and then I think a pretty significant gap for me between Temple of Doom and Last Crusade and then obviously Crystal Skull is something else entirely <laughs> yes <laughs> but I think if you if you surveyed people of our age or even you know, within 10, 10 years of our, our age, either way, I think Last Crusade is the favorite of a pretty significant you know portion of the population, which I think partly is due to just when it came out and when it was popular, uh, but also because it is more kid friendly than either of the first two movies. That's definitely true. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to talk about there. Um, yeah, I think the word favorite is important because I think even people who would call this their favorite of the three, usually unless they're crazy, would agree that Raiders is the best of the three. Well, Raiders is one of the best, you know, handful of movies ever made. Yeah, so. it's on the AFI Top 100 list. It was nominated for Best Picture. It's a masterpiece. But uh, I think you're exactly right. I think people our age really, really nostalgically have a soft spot for this film because there's a pretty good chance it was the first one they saw in the theater. Yeah. 
came out in 1989. I was already a big fan of the franchise. I was really looking forward to it, and my parents basically made a judgment call. Wait, wait, you were a huge fan when you were seven years old of the franchise? Yeah, I was already on board. Like, I was already anticipating this movie. I'd seen the first two. I mean, I think we talked about it last time that I'd like Raiders of the Lost Ark is like one of the first films that I like have a memory of sitting down and watching on VHS, like being at a friend's house and being five or six years old and (laughs) just having vivid memories of like, you know, it's like a bunch of Disney movies and then that. Um, And then, of course, Willow, which we talked about recently, (laughs) which was a year before this, which was the first like, quote unquote, adult, you know, non Disney movie that I saw in theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my parents made a judgment call and they decided not to, let, they went to go see it opening night and then they decided not to let me see it in the theater. And I was fucking devastated by that, <laughs> especially cause I was going to school the next week and you know, a bunch of my friends had, had been allowed to go see it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think the fact that, uh, that they saw it at this age and that they saw it in the theater is significant and a lot of people sort of like nostalgia response, mm-hmm. you know, just like with uh, return of the Jedi, I, I think it's definitely a movie that suffers from what you're talking about like a lot of this faux or unsuccessful attempts at like humor or being a little more accessible or being a little more family friendly perhaps of a movie about indiana jones with his dad is the equivalent of um you know ewoks or whatever yeah i've I've watched it twice now since we recorded our last episode including seeing it in in a theater last weekend for a special father's day screening that's awesome yeah i gotta say it really really holds up for me and i think that it's incredibly successful from like an emotional standpoint and i get totally invested in the father-son relationship and all the incredible meta stuff going on with the fact that james bond is playing indiana jones's father and in the whole idea of the indiana jones franchise to begin with was that he was the the unofficial son of james bond or whatever when he rolls in you know 48 minutes into the film or whatever I do get chills, you know, just hearing that voice and seeing that face on screen. And I think the two of them have, he and Ford have such incredible, easy chemistry that just reminds you why they are two of the biggest movie stars of all time and why they're just, there may never be movie stars of that caliber who can do what they do. And the fact that they get to do that together and the fact that Connery's actually only 12 years older than Ford (laughs) I know it's so amazing. mathematically it makes very little sense and yet you just completely go with it you know between the yeah. salt and pepper beard and the you know the gravitas in his voice and the character decisions made like you just completely buy it the entire time I mean I never shed a tear during Raiders of the Lost Ark or Temple of Doom there's never moments in those movies that give me cause to tear up but there's mm-hmm. multiple moments in Last Crusade where I cry every single time one of them being when Harrison Ford crawls back up the cliff and mm-hmm. his father embraces him for the first time. It's like the first time you've really seen them legitimately like touch in that mm-hmm. way during the film because he literally like just thought that he lost his son and didn't get a chance to say goodbye. And then at the end, when um, uh, when he catches him, when he catches him, uh, when he's you know he's about to fall into the crevasse or whatever, and he calls him by his name for the first time. He spent the entire movie calling him Junior. And now he finally calls him by the name that he wants to be addressed by. I, I just... It, it does it for you, man. Like the waterworks just flow during that moment. It's just, and it's such a silly moment because if you watch really closely, Spielberg's basically just like shaking the camera a lot to invoke mm-hmm. this earthquake, you know, the entire temple's falling apart or whatever. Yeah. All he does in that moment is he literally just stops shaking the camera. Watch it closely. <laughs> when he says Indiana, the camera just stops shaking. And yet just that, you know, that change in technique just gives me goosebumps. 
mm-hmm. and hearing uh, Connery say that word for the first time in the film and finally connecting with his son that way and Harrison Ford turning to Connery. It's, it's exactly what I want out of that relationship, which could have been so rote and so flimsy and so coasting on the um, charisma of those two movie stars, but they actually have like a legitimate connection, I believe, which is unique in the series. I don't think there's anything else in this trilogy that that hits me on that emotional level. Obviously, these two dudes are are titans in their world, and they are, like I said, easy charisma. It makes a lot of sense, and they do great stuff. I don't think the script is spectacular, and I think this movie does coast on the on the charisma and and, and chemistry of these two guys quite a bit and sort of Spielberg creating a lot of iconic moments throughout the film, especially the ending, I mean, the the Zeppelin scene. Basically, every set piece is, is super enjoyable and, and you know, extremely Spielbergian. I don't know. I, got, I don't know how emotional I've ever gotten watching this movie. And it, but I, I will say, you're right. It could have been really sappy and bad, this father-son relationship, but I think the decision to keep Henry like so prickly and distant, even during their escapades, uh, really does end up paying off in the end. They sort of legitimize why he is prickly and why he is distant, just because you know focusing on his work. The whole the whole relationship works quite well. So a lot of the jokes and a lot of the dialogue is super cheesy, and like I, <laughs> I I don't it really didn't sit well with me the last time I saw it. Again, if I had seen it in the theater with people who are all having a good time, but maybe maybe watching it on the couch alone is not the best venue for this. I don't know. It, it is one of my preferred like hangover movies. I, yeah. I've definitely I've revisited it many times on many hungover Sunday mornings and just absolutely enjoyed the hell out of it. But yeah, it feels it's the lightest and the silliest of the three for sure because you know we don't really count. King of the Crystal Skull. But in terms of just being like a set piece machine, pretty damn effective, right? You, yeah, you know, we could we crazy. could even just briefly dance through it. Like it opens with one of this the most gleefully, exuberantly effective set pieces Spielberg's ever attempted, right? Oh yeah. How do you how do you feel about the the true prologue, the young Indiana Jones prologue? Yeah, the River Phoenix stuff is is fantastic. I did read uh just today that Tom Stoppard was the one who sort of created the connective tissue between the, the the prologue and the the current day they made that that guy the same person um which is which is pretty cool panama hat guy panama hat guy yeah yeah no it's it is a stroke of genius especially the way they connect it and river phoenix uh man i you know I, we all wish he would have had a long career i mean he's the only one for this role right he had already yeah. played harrison ford's son in the mosquito coast uh what three years earlier mm-hmm and uh, yeah, he was he was on the verge of becoming one of the one of the biggest movie stars of his generation. And he you know he only gets about twelve or fourteen minutes of screen time here, but he certainly makes an impression. It's it's crazy to think about how much how how much he channels Harrison Ford in this thing because it could have it could have felt really phony and dumb. I mean, we we just saw Solo come out, and as much as I think you know what's nuts did a fine job. You know, embracing the spirit of of Harrison Ford, like River Phoenix in in Glass Crusade, is as good as it's going to get in terms of just the natural charisma and and badassery of of Harrison Ford. It's hard because the prologues are so good in each of the first three movies. How would you rate them? 
yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I think you got to go in order again, but because <laughs> how are you going to argue with the bolt, you know, the boulder and stuff in the, in the first one, but then the, you know, all the James Bondy stuff in, um, Club in Shanghai club, Obi-Wan and the second one. Yeah. I guess you got to go in order, but again, like I really feel like Temple of Doom and Last Crusade for me are just neck and neck. I, I, I feel like they just scratch a lot of the same That's itches. Interesting. Well, they're so, so different. And just in terms yeah. of, of tone and style, but yeah, yeah, I just think in terms of quality, I really think they're about the same level for me. But you're right; they're not remotely similar in terms of like tone. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is just—I mean, this is just the platonic ideal of the origin story prologue, which mm-hmm. again, just like the father-son thing, could feel very, very silly and has been—you know—handled. I mean, this is not the first film to do it certainly not going to be the last film to do this but i think it's one of the most effective examples of origin story prologues yeah and you're right like it, it is all about tone and feel because some shit some these winking meta moments could feel so cheesy and so you know forced but you know even the whip origin right the snake stuff like none of that feels winking even harrison ford's scar right with speaking of the whip so well done and and the way they sort of stick the landing at the end with when you meet yes when you meet henry jones and his uh you know the, the latin and, and and all that and just the injustice of it all well yeah and you invoked solo earlier which i think is really trying its damnedest to basically do over the course of an entire film what this movie does in the first 15 minutes which is to basically give this character that we love like a hero that he bases his persona on, right? Mm-hmm. Like he completely, you know, the 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 leather jacket and everything, it, it's all there. And then he literally places the fucking fedora right on his head. Oh, mm-hmm. God, it just gives me, it gives me chills just thinking about it. And this beautiful match cut. He is able to recover this item that he lost as a child which is a nice mirror to him losing the idol at the beginning of raiders right yeah so now two films later he act two films later and 25 years removed from being that kid who was going after this cross of coronado he now recovers this uh, item this mm-hmm. uh, you know fortune and glory uh, which is just a really nice way to start off the third film in this trilogy. So, and then all the stuff in Venice is, I think, is really wonderful and really exciting. And um, and you know, I love the boat chase and all that stuff. It's it, you know, it's silly Spielbergy set piece stuff, but it's you know, nobody does it better, right? Yeah. All that stuff is fun. As I said, Connery shows up. This time around, we get a femme fatale, which is kind of fun. You know, the first movie. Let me go back to Venice real quick, because I think this is a prime example of something that I really enjoyed when I was like 12, 13. Uh-huh. But I really was like, oh, I was rolling my eyes. Like the Venice library stuff and then the like the, the librarian the stamping. Like oh, the, yeah. <laughs> the stamping gambit that they, they do here. It's just like it, it's it's so cheesy and so like obviously unrealistic and, and dumb like it, it, it's it's just like a it, it's a luck thing like we're supposed to believe that it has nothing to do with indiana jones being clever or skillful but i don't know i i, I thought that like and that's sort of indicative of a lot of the you know quote-unquote humor that happens throughout the film yeah at one point he there's like three nazis lined up and he shoots through all three of like the bullet goes through all three of them which is really a grotesque sidekick for a PG-13 movie. Very much but so, it's, yeah. But it's very much the kind of humor that this is going for. And, and I agree, it doesn't always all land. I mean, the guy's got a really... He has a very tumultuous relationship with, with comedy. 
and you know we're gonna we're gonna talk about it here in you know in a couple of films that just like when he fails it's almost always because he's trying to achieve something comedically and it's just not really his bag no i think there are some big laughs in the movie most of them coming just because connery has such incredible comic timing mm-hmm. but um but yeah i think you're right i think there is clunky comedic stuff going on here that doesn't always necessarily land um and the movie maybe does try a little too hard to lean into that perhaps to his detriment what do you think spielberg's funniest movie is <laughs> it's a good question i mean honestly this is going to sound really weird but i think some of the funniest moments he's ever some of the, like the most effective comedic moments he's ever achieved are actually in schindler's list yeah, i know and we'll talk about that here in, in a couple <laughs> movies but there's some extraordinarily elegantly just handled comedic moments in that film mm-hmm. and the first the first act of that movie the first let's call it the first hour of that movie has some of the funniest moments he's ever achieved i was gonna say catch me if you can would be would be mine maybe yeah I'll, I'll buy that for sure maybe he's gotten better about it as he's gotten older but um yeah just all the stuff bouncing around the castle in germany all the stuff on the zeppelin the incredible set piece between zeppelin airplane you know to mm-hmm. biplane yeah. to car to the seagulls i mean that's just an unbelievable sequence all the incredible optical effects are amazing tank versus horse yeah, it's one just one of my favorite <laughs> Spielberg action sequences ever. It was it was him attempting to um, him attempting to sort of like match his the truck chase in Raiders, which of course he can't do. No one can. But do, yeah. but it's an it's it's a pretty impressive uh, attempt at that. I mean, it's a great 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 sequence. It's mm-hmm. extraordinarily exciting, and th- and that's before they even get to Petra and, and into the temple, right? Yeah, and I think I think that is the most iconic part of this movie and, and the, the part I remember just being obsessed with as a kid was the were, were the trials and then the, the you know the, the grail itself you know the penitent man shall pass is something that's always <laughs> rattled around my brains and seeing this sure. and it really does sort of stick the landing here I mean you, you talked about the the earthquake at the end but just how <laughs> Just the sense of, of, of history and even the supernatural, biblical part of, of, of the Grail Room and the Knights and all that shit works so well. And it could have been so silly and so fucking stupid. But, uh, yeah, Spielberg kind of nails it. All three of these films walk an incredible tightrope with the, with the religious stuff, with the supernatural stuff that, um, that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull just absolutely blows really early i mean it just it's so ham-fisted from from you know from the very beginning um and yet these movies you know they walk this you know they're not preachy necessarily and they're not you know pro-religion or anti-religion or whatever they're just um they never speak subjectively about religion or religious people or any of that stuff i mean it's just so matter of fact which is pretty important to uh not piss anybody off or, or not make it seem like it's trying to say something bigger than it is right and then uh, and then they ride off into the sunset and uh that's that, the end of, that that's the that, end of a perfect that's the end of a perfect trilogy and we never have to talk about indiana jones again uh all right matt well okay so last crusade obviously third part of a trilogy um beloved character makes a fuck ton of money once i'm sure once they got the script and understood what it was going to be and had connery locked in that they knew this was pretty much going to be a slam dunk right like they played it safe for a reason 474 million uh, against a 48 million dollar budget. Pretty good. And then what does he decide to do? He decides to remake a 1943 World War II romantic comedy? Melodrama, perhaps? I guess. Yeah. I don't know what you would call it. I've never I've never seen it, have you? 
I've never seen a guy named Joe. No, but I should because it's one of Spielberg's favorites, a Spencer Tracy film from 1943. And um, apparently it was something he and Richard Dreyfuss had been sort of like jokingly threatening to remake ever since they started working together on Jaws. Yeah, and sometimes you have to take threats seriously because they, <laughs> they in fact did remake it into one of the weirdest movies I think you'll ever watch just knowing the context, right? Yes, and um, significant because this is the first year in which he manages to release two films over the course of 12 months. Mm -hmm. Um, He's done it a few times since. He's one of the few directors who can get away with this because he has the resources to throw behind it. But uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade came out in May of 89, always came out uh, in December. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think was met pretty much with a resounding shrug. And it's been interesting to revisit it. I'd seen it before probably not for 10, 15 years. And this time I watched it and I was so fascinated by how bizarre it is that I literally like went back and watched it again like a week later because I just couldn't get it out of my head. It is a weird, weird, weird movie that features like basically his some of his greatest strengths and some of his greatest weaknesses, sometimes like within minutes of each other within the same scene. I can't believe no one stopped and be like, are you really sure you want to do this? Okay, so this movie's about a ghost. This movie's about Richard Dreyfuss dying and becoming a ghost and then trying to cock block his former lover. <laughs> yes, in so many words. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> but the ghost part doesn't really happen until pretty deep into the movie. And the first like 40 minutes or so kind of plays out like a, like a workplace dramedy TV pilot. This feels like Northern, Ex- Northern Exposure or something, right? Exactly, and... I mean, it would be an okay TV play. Like, I'm okay with these characters, and it seems like a fun thing. I mean, they're they're uh, forest fire fighting. Uh, <laughs> Easy for you to say. Pilots, right? Yeah. Uh, which is an interesting scenario, and they're out in the in the woods, and they're all, you know, it's sort of a mountainous, northwesterny feeling Top Gun. You know where most of it was shot. Was it in Washington or Idaho? Ephrata, yeah. Much of it shot outside of Ephrata and Sprague. Sprague? 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 Sprague, Washington? Yeah. Sure. Much of it shot there and then much of it in Montana as well. Makes a lot of sense. But yeah, the the relationship stuff, the melodrama stuff, like it's all very TV-like at the beginning of this movie. And then he becomes a fucking ghost. Uh, and then it gets really, really weird. Like, it, it, this movie needs to be seen. I had never seen it, Matt, and I was, and, and I watched it with my girlfriend. We were both sort of just in shock the entire <laughs> time this was going on because I, I didn't realize it was a ghost thing. Yeah, Man, yeah, it, it, it's it's really just sort of baffling. It, it it's very well shot and like it, it's very fun. It's it's fun to look at. Like it's it's a different sort of uh, setting for Spielberg, it feels like. I mean, almost... I I wasn't upset watching the movie. Like, it's not bad. It's not annoying. But it's just so off-putting and bizarre. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, A couple things. Yeah, I I agree with, like, sort of, like, the tonal stuff or the melodrama of it all feeling very much like a a pilot for, you know, a one-hour series. And yet, like you said, it is beautifully shot film. It's shot by uh, Mikhail Solomon, probably best known for like the abyss and backdraft far and away he was ron howard's guy for a little while and then he sort of transit he was a swedish cinematographer he transitioned into directing and now he does a lot of episodic stuff directing which but it's too bad because in the late 80s he was shaping up to be one of the more interesting and exciting cinematographers so this movie is eye-poppingly beautiful 
and the um, the action sequences are as extraordinarily as you would expect from one of our greatest action uh, filmmakers, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the stuff in the airplanes, like the miniature work and all the you know the helicopter shots and like anything where they're fighting fire uh, above these tree lines is really really exciting. Um, but when they're on the ground, the movie is just struggling to figure out what kind of a story it wants to tell. I don't know. It's I mean, as we said, it's a remake, and the original took place during World War II. Here we've you know we've reconceived this same story in a very different environment. And it's kind of a cool original landscape that we're not used to seeing portrayed this way. But the movie can't decide if it's a love story or if it's an action film or if it's a movie or if it's a religious film, even. I mean, there's a lot of time in this movie spent with Richard Dreyfus talking to God, played by Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Maybe not a lot of time, but there's definitely like sequences with him walking around heaven with Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. And there's a lot of time spent with him. Dreyfus is sort of talking to himself and figuring out what he wants to do in the moment and taking a lot of time to let go and not be selfish. Because this is not like a he's quasi-heroic, but really not. And I guess it's him learning to let go, but he's already dead. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it seems pretty silly for him to be, as a ghost, caught up on not letting his former lady move on and that really is the sort of crux of the emotional letting it but, but it, it's such a petty thing for him to hold on to so you're you're really not it's hard to empathize with this dead guy at any point during the movie i mean am i approaching this too cynically or, or no no i have a very strange relationship with this movie because i do agree with most people that it is one of his quote-unquote worst films or one of his most one of his messiest films for sure mm-hmm but I can't shake the fact that there are elements of it that feel very successful and feel very right and feel almost magical in a lot of ways. And um, I think a lot of that has to do with some of the more incredible set pieces, but also a lot of it has to do with a couple of performances that I think are completely dialed into whatever the hell this movie is trying to do. And that's John Goodman and then especially Holly Hunter. Mm-hmm who's just one of my favorite actresses and she's basically she is making this work in spite of the material <laughs> like she is somehow able to almost make this work uh, because she's carrying it on her back you know they were having a conversation pretty you know in the script writing phase they're like we need a john goodman type for this <laughs> like even in 1989 <laughs> he already would have been known as a john goodman type. i mean we're, what are we here we're like right at the beginning of roseanne or maybe a little maybe a little before roseanne yeah when's, when's roseanne early 90s I think Roseanne started in like 87, 88, probably. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we probably, we you know, he would have already been a sitcom star and he obviously was already working with the Coens. So truly, you know, he's the only person who can play this character and he's wonderful and he's very funny and he's very charming. And his relationship with Holly Hunter is really working for me. But that's not necessarily the emotional crux of the movie. It's like you said, it's about this deceased character trying to figure out whether he can uh, let go, whether he can let his the love of his life go Mm -hmm. because the movie spends the first you know what 35 40 minutes legitimizing how in love these two characters are only to unceremoniously kill him off and now she has to move on to somebody who is i think the biggest problem in the film which is her love interest post 
Richard Dreyfus. And the problem is that this guy is just not strong enough or interesting enough for you to care about the two of them. I mean, I can't even remember the, the actor's name off the top of my head. That's a bad sign. The first line in Wikipedia is, Brad Johnson is an American actor and former, former Marlboro man. <laughs> okay. So that is his claim to fame. He's also uh, one of the stars of the Left Behind movies and he was on melrose place okay yes he is extremely weak and generic and not uh yeah not intriguing in the least just a sort of a void of charisma you have to embrace that relationship the way that richard dreyfus comes to embrace it in order for this movie to work in a dramatic way yeah and you just can't he and holly hunter just don't really work together and i unfortunately you know and i don't i don't mean to railroad the guy but it's it's on him he he can't he's not up to her level yeah. you know he can't work on the same level holly hunter is working at and as a result that relationship falls flat and it, it it's really bizarre that for a movie that stars fucking Dreyfus, Holly Hunter, John Goodman, and Audrey Hepburn, that they fucked up. I mean, Keith David, right. like, that they fucked up this huge role by casting some guy who was totally unknown and terrible. Yeah. Like maybe there must have been some buzz around this dude as like a, the next up and comer, but he's he, he's not good. And as a result, you're much more interested in the in the scenes between dead Dreyfus and and living Holly Hunter. A couple of the best scenes near the end of the film are Dreyfus and Hunter dancing to uh, "Smoke Gets in Your Eyes." Yeah, which I think is a really, really lovely scene. And then when they're eventually in the plane together as she's sort of like flying the last mission, that's good, solid Spielberg stuff. It's exciting. It's emotional. It's fun. It's beautifully shot. It's like it's all working because she's literally taking the reins, right? She's literally like taking the stick. Yeah. And the movie really starts to, if you forgive me, starts to fly in those final moments. But it can't stick the landing because there's nothing to land on at that point. Yeah, there's nothing to land on. There's like, uh, I'm just waiting for this movie to end. And like some of those last few scenes just really drag on. I was just rooting for this movie to be over uh, (laughs) at that point because I just did not give a shit about what was going on on screen. And the saving grace, if there is any, is that a lot of the actors are fantastic and Holly Hunter is just magnetic and it is so handsomely shot in, you know, in interesting environments. I just, the characters I just don't really, didn't really care about. And it's such a weird, odd story to tell. This is the most inexplicable of, of Spielberg movies <laughs> to me. Like even something that bombed, like 1941. Like that's something he was trying. Like he tried to do an out and out sort of madcap comedy, and it just didn't work. It failed spectacularly. But this movie is just even more bonkers than anything he's done in just a completely sort of boring way sometimes so so you think this is a worse film than 1941 again like I, this this movie defies sort of easy categorization because it truly it, it is truly. it is not uh it's, it's it's like not a movie like it doesn't feel like a movie <laughs> at all it's just it, it is a it's a curiosity of uh, of the highest degree so that's the perfect word for it another word i would use would be novelty which i think is the only word to describe what would come next he's already failed at the you know comedic attempt with 1941 as we discussed earlier he struggles a little bit with some of the comedic beats of indiana jones on the last crusade there's comedic stuff in this that completely falls flat like when uh holly hunter won't dance with all the other smoke jumpers until they've washed their hands and then you know you get this cavalcade of dudes running into them it's so just Oh, it's yeah. just tone deaf. Yep. So he takes all that stuff, just like ramps it up to the nth degree 
with Hook, which comes a year later, or two years later, 1991, which is, I think, perhaps it's just because of my age, but I really feel like this might be his most infamous film, right? Like, I think 1941 has that curiosity factor or just his, you know, his age at the time, the fact that he was coming off this crazy run and he was too young to know better. Mm -hmm. Whereas Hook, he was old enough to know better. And yet, I don't think this is his worst film. No, it's not. Okay, let's get it. Okay, so 1991 hook i've got (laughs) a lot of thoughts about this this movie i feel like has the biggest uh, dissonance between people of our very specific age group the way we look back at it and then the general public this movie on rotten tomatoes is something like 20 percent this movie was panned but i feel like our specific age group people who were 8 to 12 during this time look back on this movie extremely fondly because of that I hadn't seen this movie in a long time, but we definitely had the VHS. You know, this is a movie I watched a number of fucking times when I was a kid. Yeah, this was this was my first Spielberg film in a movie theater. And I was just trying to figure it out today. I think conservatively, probably saw this movie in the theater four times, at least. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat. I think it definitely was the first Spielberg movie I saw in the theaters. It had to have been. And it's a movie that was just so fucking important for, for kids our age because we all... You know, you grow up on Peter Pan, and Peter Pan is such a tantalizing character and product and story that it was crazy that this movie uh, existed. And then obviously Robin Williams is sort of catnip to a kid, you know, just his manic energy and who he is. You're, you're, you're very attracted to him. So as, as, as much as I knew how much people dislike this movie now or how much is sort of shat upon um, and the fact that I hadn't seen it in a long time and I had seen it so many times previous this was like the movie I was looking forward to revisiting most sure um, during this the viewing experience was extremely uh, interesting and I'll, I'll start here Looking back at sort of the production issues this movie had, I sort of understand how this movie came to be what it is. I mean, of all the movies that Spielberg has made, um, and I obviously haven't delved too deep into every single one of them, but this seems like the one he was most unprepared to make when he went into production. Do you, f- do you think that's fair? Yeah, it seems like there was a lot of starting and stopping. A lot of like, I think I know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. I want to do it with these people. No, I don't want to do it with those people anymore. Someone else is going to try and do this. Okay, now it's coming back to me again. I mean, it seems like this has happened quite a bit over the course of his career where he like circles back to projects. Uh, Spielberg's too nice. He just says yes to everything and then he'll figure it out later. Like he's, he's always attached to so many different you know projects. Yeah. Obviously, he's just... He has that childlike sort of ambition and, and wonder, and he wants to do all these things and make everyone happy. But this is a movie that, I don't know, conceptually makes a lot of sense. But then when Especially it came, for him. Yeah, for him. Yeah, a, a child not growing up or becoming for, forgetting who they were as a child. Yeah. I read some interviews after the fact of, of him talking about this movie. The thing that stuck with me is the first act of this movie is fucking spectacular. <laughs> okay. But before he goes to Neverland, it is such a good setup. While watching, I was like, oh, is everyone wrong? Like, is this movie actually <laughs> good? Careful. That's the, this, is, this is the beguiling thing about this movie. It will, it will really, really, like, it will grab you by the nose and lead you in this direction before it just, like, smashes your face into the pavement. I know. God. You know? <laughs> like, this movie is an emotional roller coaster, especially for people our age who saw it as many times as we did in the theater. Robin Williams in this movie is like the kid's idea of a, what a businessman is. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's such a caricature 
yeah. uh, coming from someone who has no idea what business is like, <laughs> that it's like this is yeah. He's just a very serious businessman. He's so. It's like the big. Lego. It's like the Lego movie, right? <laughs> yeah, like exactly. President, President, business. Yes, one hundred percent. But besides that, like the, the the setup is good. Like I buy the dad who's too busy and he neglects his children, and I I think the whole you know going back to London stuff is is, is appropriately creepy and atmospheric. I, I think I think it works up until they go to Neverland. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, it feels very kind of a television to me. Yeah, uh, to yeah. sort of harken back to this always idea. I mean, it feels very of its time. It feels very 90s. Films like Jaws or even Close Encounters or Raiders, like those feel very timeless. Whereas like you could watch this movie and be like, oh, this is this is a movie made. I mean, you could pinpoint it probably within a few months of when it came out. There's something very 90s about it. The way they handle cell phones, you know, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. <laughs> even, some of, even some of John Williams' music in the first, you know, 30 minutes of the movie or whatever, it's just, I don't know, there's something kind of generic about it all yeah which maybe is somewhat intentional i mean you really are supposed to evoke this contrast between the quote-unquote real world and how banana pants neverland is going to be eventually right Mm -hmm. so i don't disagree that the setup isn't uh somewhat effective and this movie really gives robin williams the ability to play both sides of his persona. I mean, up until this point, like you said, Robin Williams, a certain type of Robin Williams was catnip to a child. And it wasn't until later in off in the 90s that I realized there was a whole other Robin Williams that I wasn't being exposed to. <laughs> yeah. You know, the Robin Williams of uh, Awakenings or or even um, uh, Good Morning Vietnam is not a good example, but, uh, uh, you know, Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even Goodwill Hunting was kind of a revelation to me. I was like, oh, that's right. There's a, like a fucking bearded, like mature, <laughs> dramatic Robin Williams who's lurking, you know, in the shadows. You know, he's very good. He's obviously, you know, he's a movie star. And when they're on the plane on their way to London and the camera pans up from his um, from his death grip on the armrest, like, oh, yeah, he's also kind of old. Yeah. Like, to a child, he seems like he's an old dude. He's probably not as old as he's playing in the movie, mm-hmm. but he's like, he's all kind of like hairy and overweight. And you're just like, oh, yeah, this is this is an old dude, which is a wonderful setup considering where the movie wants to take him. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, P.S., did you notice that Dustin Hoffman is the captain of the of the plane? That it's Dustin Hoffman's voice that comes over the, the uh, speakers? I did not know and, that. That's fantastic. Yeah, Dustin Hoffman says, uh, please go back to your seats. We're experiencing some turbulence here. Yeah, Robin Williams was uh, 40 years old when they made this movie. Exactly. So he's not well, He's not nearly as old as he's playing in the film. And then they get to London, and then you get freaking Maggie Smith. And Maggie Smith has been playing an old lady for so fucking long. It's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nuts. She's playing, like, isn't she playing like 90 or 85 or something in this movie? And she made this movie when she was like 60? Yeah, she's 65. only 17. She's not that much older. She's only older 17 than. years older than Robin Williams. Yeah, so she was, she was 50. She was 57 years old, basically, older than this movie was made. But how wonderful is she and how much sort of like weight does she bring to the film and to that yeah, character? Yeah. And then Carolyn Goodall, who plays his wife, who would go on to be Mrs. Schindler two films later mm-hmm. is just so wonderful and elegant and beautiful. And Charlie Cosmo and, um, the little girl who plays the little girl whose name is Casey because she basically never made another movie. Um, they're all great. Phil Collins, you know, Phil Collins. Thank you. Oh God. We can get into this cameo situation here in a second, but yeah, Phil Collins shows up as a detective for some reason. And it's, it's all a little bizarre, but it's all kind of working. And even the scene where the kids get kidnapped is like really good, classic, clean, effective, fun Spielberg stuff. Yes. 
you know, like the crazy green smoke that, you know, rolls into the playroom and the way that they cross cut that, they juxtapose that with the whole uh, orphanage uh, charity event that they're at. All that stuff is pretty good. Yeah, I agree. It's all working pretty well. And then I think you're exactly right. I think once Julia Roberts shows up and things start to get weird and pixie dust-ish, the movie kind of starts to go off the rails, but in a really, really extraordinary—it's really very much like a, a train wreck that you just can't look away from. It is a fascinating disaster. That is right. And there are so many crazy resources thrown at this movie. Like the sets are bonkers. Like just the the it's it's like one of the gaudiest movies you'll ever look at. And that's why I think that it, it would make for a really interesting double feature with something like Robert Altman's Popeye. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You just look at the amount of resources. You're like, how did anybody like only you know somebody like Robert Altman who was at the height of his powers in the late seventies or early eighties, or Spielberg at the height of his powers here in the you know early nineties could get away with making films that are this ostentatious and over the top like the sets are incredible the costumes are incredible the amount of practical effects like they're throwing a lot of resources at this thing i think this is where the problems start is i i think the sets are a a little too much i mean like the the pier like it's fantastic it's it's huge it's ridiculous but i think this movie would have lent itself better to you want to explore nether neverland right and the fact yeah. that we're 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 only going to be on two sets hinders like the geography of it all, you know, like the the, the pier set with with the uh, you know Captain Hook's ship is is great. It's crazy. It's huge. It looks extremely expensive. The Lost <laughs> Boys area is similar. You know, it, it's very inventive, I guess. And it's a skate park. It's a, it's a fucking skate park, and yeah, it, 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 it's 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 baffling in a lot of ways, but. Fuck, it would have been so much better to shoot on location in a number of different spots and explore the island. It would have been better because basically once we get to Neverland, we're, we're, we're not straying from either of these two sets. And it feels, you know, despite how, like you said, how gaudy these sets are, this movie feels kind of small once it gets to Neverland. That's interesting. I mean, at the risk of giving the film too much credit for being self-aware, it opens with a performance of the Peter Pan play, right? Yeah, I wrote my notes that I'm like, I'm kind of mad that Peter Pan, the idea exists in this world. <laughs> like, that doesn't track, really. Yeah, although it's... It, the Who wrote the really, story? The idea is that the story really happened, and uh, Wendy recounted the story to J.M. Barry, who was her neighbor, right? Like, they're basically saying the guy who wrote the book, and then which eventually went on to be the basis Is for the play. Is that specific thing alluded to in the movie? Did I miss that? Yeah, she says it. Yeah, she, at one point Maggie Smith says, our neighbor, Mr. Barry, he wrote oh, all of our stories down. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So right. they're basically saying this is all real. This really happened to us. She basically just recounted the stories to J.M. Barry. He wrote them down, and then that, of course, is the basis. Wouldn't you be mad if you were from J.M. Barry's estate? Just they're saying he's not imaginative at all. He's he's more of a documentarian (laughs) than anything else. But my point is that um, is that the movie invokes the play from the opening scene, which I think is actually a pretty effective opening scene. Mm -hmm. So. Could one make the argument that the film is sort of like trying to sort of exist in the same world where you basically have just a couple of different sets that you're allowed to play in? You have the pirate ship set, you have the nursery set, you have the Lost Boys home or whatever. Like you just have a couple, you know, you have the mermaid uh, reef or whatever. If they don't, if they can't exist on stage, perhaps they can't exist in the movie. There's something to what you're saying is because... The uh, Neverland stuff does feel like a huge budget play more so than a, than a movie because it is clearly a set. 
you know, everything on there is clearly a set. Like, it's not natural at all. It feels like Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland, you know? Sure. Which is effective in, in, in some ways, but also, like I said, like, I, in the spirit of adventure, you want to get outside of sets and go into the actual to the actual world. And I, I think that was a great missed opportunity. And, you know, reading Spielberg talking about, like, this movie went, it's supposed to shoot for 70 days and, it, like, shot for twice that long because he got on, Crazy. got on set and didn't, just kept adding more and made it more ostentatious and didn't really know where to stop. Which is interesting to me because the sword fighting in this movie is horrendous. Like like the choreography of the of, of the fights and the action set pieces I think are horrible, which we know Spielberg's so capable of incredible action set pieces and none of them in this movie are any good. Yeah, I think that this is a this is a clear and present example of a movie just completely getting away from a director. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Of them just like losing the thread. And he said as much. Like he doesn't like this movie. He thinks it's a he thinks it's an artistic failure. Like you said, it went uh, it went a month over a month over schedule, which, you know, here's a guy, this is the guy who made Jaws, so he's not, he's certainly not unfamiliar with the idea of going over budget and over schedule, but this is kind of crazy. I mean, I think the original budget was something like 40, 45 million or something. It went north of 70, you know, weeks and weeks over schedule. So yeah, this is like, this was a guy kind of floundering mm-hmm. and you can see it. You can feel it in the movie. Like yeah. I, and Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman don't have especially nice things to say about the experience. How could they? So. They're showing up in this ridiculous set, putting on the, like <laughs> Dustin Hoffman, especially putting on this fucking costume every day. To- okay, but let's let's just let's just give the devil his due here. Dustin Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman is fucking incredible is, in this movie. He's committing. He is committing with a capital C, and there's something really extraordinary about an actor of his caliber committing at this level to this kind of a project, right? Absolutely, and and I will say in this movie's to this movie's credit, the and I don't know how much. This probably has a lot to do with Dustin Hoffman, but this characterization of Captain Hook is really, really good and effective yeah. and, and actually... It's fully formed. Fully formed. It's interesting. Like, this guy's got so much insecurity and, like, like the suicidal... I forgot about the yeah. suicidal part. There's so much dark stuff in this movie that is not <laughs> for children. Yeah, exactly. and get It just sort of like gets to the tonal inconsistency of it. But, yes, I'm sorry. Continue. Oh, no. I mean, th- that's about it. I mean, Bob Hoskins is fantastic, too. And all these weird pirate cameos that that happen are are pretty fun as well and i wish we had spent a little more time with with captain hook because the robin williams lost boy stuff is pretty fucking underwhelming throughout yeah it's pretty silly it's pretty childish and um and it's not nearly as much fun as the film wants it to be and yeah i think that the two best performances in the film are clearly dustin hoffman and bob hoskins who have this kind of like vaguely hinted at homosexual relationship which apparently is what is what they were playing Mm -hmm. like that was their that was their idea and they brought it to Spielberg's attention, and he was kind of like, uh, I like where your head's at, but uh, let's just pretend this conversation never took place, basically. So <laughs> even though Spielberg, I don't think, ever officially endorsed it, that is clearly what they're playing. And as a result, their relationship is really, really interesting. And I do think my favorite stuff in the film revolves around Smee's, not just their relationship, but Smee's relationship to the like extended pirate universe and the <laughs> prostitutes and the town. Like, I think my favorite sequence in the movie is Smee picking up the hook from the blacksmith, carrying it to the ship, which basically turns into a sort of like a musical number almost. Yeah. <laughs> like, turns into a dance number, and then he delivers it, and then he basically does stand up 
for a little bit before introducing. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, he's, he's doing some crowd work. It's great. A man so deep, he's almost unfathomable. A man so quick, he's even fast asleep. It's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's great stuff. Bob Hoskins is so delightful in this movie. He's what? He's three years off of Who Framed Roger Rabbit at this point. Yeah. He's a couple years off of Mona Lisa. I mean, he's having a moment. This is pre um, Super Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's wonderful. He's so wonderful. He's so perfectly cast in this movie. You kind of just want to see a spinoff about him. Yeah. And yeah, and, and Dustin Hoffman, who is certainly somebody, I'm sure I'm not the only one who would have been scratched, even as a kid in 1991, I was scratching my head being like, that really, that guy? Mm-hmm. And yet there clearly was a method to this madness. I mean, he is, he's kind of, he's kind of amazing in this movie, <laughs> just like chewing the scenery as somebody of, you know, as only someone of his caliber can. Mm-hmm. So you just, you almost wish that the movie around him was, was living up to those kinds of expectations. Of course, the aforementioned Julia Roberts, Gwyneth Paltrow shows up. Glenn Close, David Crosby. Jimmy Buffett is in there at some point. It, it's all kind of indicative of how out of control this movie was. I mean, talking about Hoskins and and, and Dustin Hoffman together, like there, there are moments and scenes in this movie that just that that soar, that are that are fantastic and weird and funny, and and then it, it all goes to shit because of a <laughs> of, of a terrible sword fight or a, or just extremely cringy sequences in The Lost Boys, and the movie's just a mess. It's just it's just a, a total mess, and I understand why kids loved it and why I loved it as a kid and why it's uh, was sort of a cult thing among people our age man rufio got got screwed in this movie too didn't he (sighs) yeah that poor guy like the the movie the way the movie handles deals with him is kind of indicative of where his career would go afterwards and i I feel sort of bad for the guy isn't he an lmu guy didn't he go to lmu i think he he did our alma mater yeah but there there's a sequence uh just past the halfway point of this movie use you use the word sore and i'll try my best not to invoke too many flying puns here there's there's a moment where the movie sort of like finds its footing figures out what it wants to say what it wants to do and all of a sudden all the elements come together and robin williams figures you know his character figures it out the performance all of a sudden crystallizes and john williams score just like finds a fifth gear Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, and then all of a sudden Spielberg's like, this is what I do. And there's this amazing sequence where he he learns to fly. And the movie all of a sudden does as well, just just for a moment. Yeah. Suddenly it's just like, ah, there it is. There's the magic. There's everything we knew you guys were all capable of. The film can't sustain it. Mm-mm. But there is a there is a sequence in the movie that gives me goosebumps. And all, I revisit it all the time, not just because of for nostalgic purposes, but just to like see all these elements all of a sudden come together and click. Yeah. I've gone to see uh, John Williams perform live a couple of times at the Hollywood Bowl and he always opens his set with this musical number. No shit. He always cool. <laughs> opens his set with Hook, which is crazy because this movie does not have a good reputation, but I think we can all agree that surprisingly this might be one of the strongest scores in his filmography. The music in this movie is incredible. It takes a while to get there. It takes a while to find itself, mm-hmm. but there are there are some really high highs for John Williams in this film. Yeah, no, the, the music's great, and that sequence in particular is something I, I noted as being one of the better, more subtle, well-done things, like his transformation into 
back into Peter Pan actually works. Yeah. Man, the rest of the stuff is really <laughs> clunky. Anything to do with with Tinkerbell is bad. And like, I, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not the biggest Julia Roberts guy, but I, you know, I don't think it's her fault. She was struggling. Apparently, she was like she was basically breaking up with Kiefer Sutherland. I think at this point they were having a really rocky marriage. Spielberg apparently was not very supportive of her on set. They were not clicking. They could. They were not communicating. And I get the impression, you know, she was, there was certain days where she just like wasn't showing up to set because she was busy arguing with Kiefer Sutherland or whatever. Like, yeah, makes sense. apparently this was a, this was a really tough time in her life and in her career. Mm-hmm. So she has nothing but bad things to say about the experience. Spielberg has gone on record as feeling guilty that he didn't handle that relationship very well. Cause I don't think they'd speak anymore. Yeah. I agree. I don't think she's bad. It's not, she's not even necessarily miscast. That's tough. It's a thankless role in a lot of ways. Like the whole Tinkerbell is in love with Peter Pan thing. As far that's not part of like the Peter Pan story, really, right? I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I was You're not intimately not, familiar with Jan Barry's works? Yeah. No, I'm not a Peter Pan historian. This is the film when it kind of becomes clear that like perhaps it's time to put away childish things, right? Like, I think Spielberg clearly realizes, like, maybe this is not the filmmaker he is anymore. Maybe these aren't the kinds of films he should be making anymore. Maybe it's time to spread his wings a little bit, dig a little deeper. Yeah, he wouldn't make another full-on kids movie for basically 20 years. Tintin, BFG? Tintin. I think his next film is the last time he ever really successfully made what I would call a four-quadrant populist film. Because I think Hook is kind of a failure. Yeah. And then he makes Jurassic Park, which is the most successful film of all time at the time. And then he wins his Oscar. And then he never really successfully can go back to this well again, because I think The Lost World is a failure. I think Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is a failure. I think Tintin is kind of a fascinating failure. I think the BFG is a failure. I don't think he's made another one of these kinds of films successfully since Jurassic Park. A populist film, you're saying. Something that everyone can enjoy. Like, what's your four-quadrant argument here? Because there are a few movies on here that that kind of hit everything but aren't, like, blockbustery type things, you know? I think calling Jurassic Park a kid's film is a little bit reductive, but that's also kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah. You know, if you consider that the Indiana Jones films are quote-unquote kid's films, you know, that uh, Jurassic Park is a kid's film, that Lost World is a kid's film, that clearly, you know, uh, BFG is a kid's film. I don't think he's ever been able to do that again since since basically the biggest hit of his career, which was Jurassic Park. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you have movies like Catch Me If You Can. You have movies yeah, like... Which feels like a sophisticated adult caper. I guess. I don't know. I loved it when I was, you know, 16 years old or whatever, right? So. Catch Me If You Can? Oh, sorry. 16 is wrong. That came out when we were in college, dude. Well, I loved it when I was an idiot 19-year-old. So. <laughs> As did I. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's move on to Jurassic Park. I mentioned in a in a recent podcast. I have I just reread the book Jurassic Park and looking into it. I mean, it was such an obvious like contender to to be made into a movie. And obviously, Michael Crichton's you know history with Hollywood was was well known. The concept was was easy, and it was it was uh, highly bid upon by by a bunch of studios in Hollywood. And eventually, Spielberg bought the rights. Uh, for a lot of money and hired Michael Crichton to write the script, which was uh, basically tossed out and uh, given to... Your personal hero, <laughs> or your screenwriting hero, right? <laughs> Whose best movie, best screenplay is probably Premium Rush. You'd agree with that, right? <laughs> the Tom Stoppard of his of his generation, David Kep. Yeah, I'm looking at four studios bidding, and each one of them had their director, right? Warner Brothers wanted Tim Burton. 
Columbia wanted Richard Donner. 20th Century Fox wanted Joe Dante. And then Universal, of course, Spielberg is their guy. And then once Universal started bidding, the other studios were just like, okay, we're out. You know, we can't compete with that. Crichton clearly has never been a guy who was able to successfully, you know, I mean, I guess you could look at Westworld or, or the Andromeda strain. Like, he's had his his opportunities. Great train robbery. Clearly, he's not a screenwriter. He's a novelist. He's a conceptual artist. And, uh, and I think he and Spielberg were actually starting to sort of break story on er at this point right like they were already i don't think er came around until 94 or 95 but i think they were already starting to have those meetings when uh, jurassic park came together rereading the book uh michael Crichton does not have a good sense of character really at all (laughs) fair enough pretty bad i mean he he coasts entirely on this concept and willingness to kill off main characters and set action set piece type stuff so like the characters in jurassic park the movie are not incredibly deep or well drawn i mean they're, they're pretty good and the acting has a lot to do with it but they're way more one-dimensional in the book even than they are in, in the screenplay so i guess i'll give david kep a little bit of credit in terms of adaptations i've read the book as well though not for many many years i do feel that they even though anytime you read a book and then see the eventual movie you're always going to be that jerk who's just like oh they left this out they left that out oh i wish they would have dealt with this this was so much more fully fleshed you know you can't help yourself given the quote-unquote degree of difficulty here in making this into something that was you know populist it's a very violent book it's a very dark book and there isn't really any characters who i would call you know heroic yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that is an important point to make, yeah, for sure. Kep kind of Spielbergizes the whole thing. Yeah. Which, you know, sounds crass, but ultimately I, I kind of feel it's the right move mm-hmm. for this particular project, right? You're not going to make this... I mean, you've you've mentioned before you want to see a gritty, R-rated, you know, faithful-to-the-book remake of this whole thing. Sure, yeah. <laughs> which I, I think would be an interesting experiment, but... <laughs> To me, I think you gotta you gotta do this the way that they did it. You know, make this PG thirteen big budget blockbuster. You know that you can take eleven year old kids to. Well, they need the big budget, obviously, to make the the dinosaurs somewhat real. And I mean, this movie is famously we don't have to get into it too much, but it really melded practical effects with with CGI for the first time. When, when people talk about the rise of CGI in film, like this is the movie they they point to generally. Where Water, watershed film, yeah. You know, you, you mentioned those directors like Tim Burton. Dante Donner. I can't really envision the movie either of those three would have made. I mean, I, th- I think Spielberg was the was the perfect choice and the only one who could sort of reasonably do what he did with this movie. And it is a pretty darn perfect adaptation in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I would like an R-rated gritty reboot that's a little darker. But again, if you're going to make this PG-13, which given the budget was it was going to take to make this movie, they had to. This movie sort of nails it as much as you as much as you can. And I, I, I give a lot of credit. I, I sort of had a personal backlash to this movie a few years back. I think it sure. was when it had its, its 20th anniversary because a lot of people our age hold this up as, as like just a great 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 movie and this movie does have its flaws and so i i sort of had honed in on those flaws and sort of some of the cheesiness and silliness of the first half of the movie but you know in re-watching it i've sort of softened and uh <laughs> holy hell like this movie has a great 
setup, and then it's just a full speed roller coaster for like the second half of this movie, uh, which is really really impressive. Just the sort of speed and uh, just nonstop action of, of of you know the latter half of this movie is is really really impressive. And as sort of a populist action set piece, it's hard to have that many quibbles with it. Yeah, if you really want to talk about like rhythm and pacing, you could certainly do a lot worse than emulating this particular film like you said it's just got a great like roller coaster vibe to it mm-hmm. uh, particularly after they first enter the park although I'll, I'll you know i'll be a little bit of the dark cloud here i i definitely think that you know my sort of feelings about the film have have, have softened a little bit in the last decade or so i mean last crusade and hook and jurassic park was the one, two, three punch for those of us who were, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old during yeah. those years. <laughs> yeah. And anybody who was 11 years old when they went to go see this movie in the theater opening night, as I did, walked out and was just like, that's that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> the greatest movie. They will never make a better movie than that. Like, not only is Steven Spielberg, you know, like maybe the only filmmaker who, uh, who you know, who is a household name for me at this point at 11 years old, but he's just made an absolute masterpiece that speaks to everything an 11-year-old boy wants. Well, he made he made dinosaurs real. And like we you need to go back to that time. We weren't used to CGI. We didn't have that. Yeah. That in and of itself is a humongous, major, important feat. It's. I mean, it was, a, it was a turning point for special effects, like you said. I mean, they could have very easily fallen back on what was popular and easy and, and you know, the things that they had context for at the time. And that would have been Phil Tippett's stuff, right? Yeah. He, he came from Dragon Slayer and RoboCop, and he was, the, um, he was the, the stop motion guy. And his stuff was very, very good, and we bought it in the 80s. But by the time the 90s rolled around and by the time, you know, Stan Winston and Dennis Muren are starting to do crazy things with James Cameron and we got The Abyss and we got, I guess, Terminator 2 would have been the year before this. We're starting to realize that maybe there is something else. Maybe there is the next step in this process. And so when Spielberg sees what Dennis Muren can do in his tests... All of a sudden, Phil Tippett's stuff looks a little bit silly by comparison. So I really think you could have a version of this film with Phil Tippett's original uh, uh, stop motion. Dennis Muren comes along and says, maybe we can do something else. Like maybe there's a new world to be explored here. And once they see, you know, what the CGI stuff is capable of, then they're obviously going to have to, you know, sort of like reinvent this from scratch. As a result, like this becomes the film where they decide we're going to make an ecumenical leap into the future, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is the movie that like basically paves the way for the next, you know, at least the next decade of CGI evolution. Mm-hmm. And then you got Stan Winston, who is the practical guy, right? Like he's the, he's the puppet guy. Yeah. He's the one who actually creates the physical, uh, you know, he creates the T-Rex that's physical on set and he creates the Raptors who could potentially be running around with their claws clicking on the linoleum. Mm-hmm. So you got CGI guy in Murin, you got physical puppet guy in um, Stan Winston, and you got Phil Tippett who basically has to become like the movement guy yeah because he was stop motion or whatever and now he's extinct and so as a result he has to basically learn to be the the dinosaur movement expert Mm -hmm. and he would take that 
and basically move on to doing something truly extraordinary extraordinary with uh, Starship Troopers. He refused to become extinct. He basically like evolved with this new stuff, and as a result, he's been you know he's been relevant. Mm-hmm. He's been very relevant uh, over you know over the course. I actually met him at one point. I was uh, I was the host at a diner in Manhattan Beach when we were in college, and I brought him his food at one point. And the guy he was sitting there with basically like introduced him. He's like, "Hey, you know who this guy is? This is Phil Tippett. He's responsible for all like your favorite movies from your childhood." Oh my god, that's <laughs> and funny. Phil Tippett was very humble. He was just like, "Stop, stop, don't." And this guy's like, "No, Phil Tippett." Look at this. This guy's a legend. Look who I'm sitting with. <laughs> anyway, he was very, very nice. It was, it was, it actually was really exciting to get to meet him because he has been responsible for, you know, so many of my favorite films. But basically, you got these three, you know, three wise men of mm-hmm. special effects. And as a result, this movie ends up being an incredible turning point. And it didn't have to be a masterpiece of action filmmaking necessarily to be a masterpiece of special effects filmmaking. But it ends up being something that people really, really responded to. And David kept script and the performances are basically just good enough to kind of push this thing into being an absolute phenomenon and something of an instant classic of the genre, right? Yeah, I mean, people were obviously going to see this movie because it's a fucking dinosaur movie. And, like, we we hadn't really had anything. It's something people respond to, something people want to see, no matter what. The restraint that they show using the CGI and just the way they bring on the T-Rex in the movie and the way the, the Velociraptors are kept and the, the fusion of the CGI with the practical stuff... Is, is so perfect throughout the movie. It, it's crazy 25 years later how well the CGI holds up. That is rewatching it now, like the, sort of the most impressive thing about Jurassic Park, uh, aside from Steven Spielberg's just action filmmaking and the suspense and the tension he manages to create throughout these action set pieces, whether it's the initial t-rex jeep thing knocking over the the jeeps and the flares and all that shit is unbelievably good and then i I think the second most iconic and the best is the velociraptors in the in the kitchen yes which are both just master classes in intention and release and action filmmaking and and, and building suspense and this movie didn't have to be this good like it could have been a sort of schlocky you know, monster movie, and uh, you know, I again, you may be hardened on this movie, but I think I've softened on this movie as as, as the years have gone on. Yeah, I revisit it pretty frequently. I've probably seen it twice in the last six months. You know, I think there's a lot of clunk to it. I think David Kep's screenplay is fine. I think the performances are fine. I think you got a lot of fine actors here who don't really have fully fleshed out characters to to work with, and uh, as a result, you kind of have to. Um, really like wait for and embrace the set pieces which are still spectacular and i i agree that the best thing the movie has going for it is the fact that it doesn't seem to have aged visually i mean that is incredible considering that we look at something you know made three years ago and we talk about the cgi looking so flubbery (laughs) yeah you know the fact that this movie 25 like we literally just passed the 25th anniversary earlier this month and uh and this movie still just looks immaculate Mm mm-hmm and so I think it's a good example of filmmaker and his team sort of being forced to mix and match uh, varieties of special effects techniques. And as a result, there's something very timeless about the look. I think uh, Peter Jackson's original uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy is benefiting from a similar timelessness, right? Yeah. Like yeah. I think I think if you look at the you know some of the Hobbit stuff now, it's going to look pretty. Oh, it's going to look terrible. Weightless yeah. and pretty, you know, CG heavy. Whereas you, you, you could look at Fellowship of the Ring and not necessarily everything would have held up 
immaculately, but I think for the most part, the combination of the miniatures and the practical effects and a sprinkling of CG helps the film to really um, not show its age. I think that's the important part is just getting you know out of the uncanny valley and making, making sure that the effort. Yeah, making sure there when you have the opportunity to be practical and tangible, you you, you take it. This movie does. I mean, the the T Rex stuff is so real and so physical and so in your face and you can you can feel the weight of this stuff uh and i think that is super fucking important uh when you're making a movie like this if it was all cgi it's just not gonna work and it's it's really just a guy who is at a very strange sort of transitional point in his career basically making what he considers to be you know the spiritual and philosophical sequel to jaws yeah right i mean as a as a monster movie or as like a visceral action movie experience, it really probably owes more to Jaws than any other film he's ever made. <laughs> if you're looking at his filmography going forward, you know, the first couple movies he makes, he's just trying to get into the business. Jaws is a huge hit. And then he's making a lot of movies that are, for him, there's a reason that they exist, or there's a reason that he wants to make them, right? They're um, more personal to him? Yeah, personal. As opposed to just like hired gun stuff? Jurassic Park is pretty mercenarial in that regard right like it's a movie that is uh i mean he did buy the rights but like it it doesn't have any meaning to him personally like there's no deeper thematic uh through line to his life or career that matters it's just him making a straightforward monster movie you know succeeding wildly in in doing so but it also makes sense that he would follow this up with something deeply personal like Schindler's List. But in terms of the mercenarial thing, I think it's significant that he basically made an agreement with Universal and with Sid Sheinberg, who said, we will finance your passion project, which is this crazy, ridiculous thing that nobody thinks is going to make any money, but you need to do Jurassic Park first. Mm -hmm. Because if Schindler's List works, we know you're not going to go back and make a film like Jurassic Park. Yeah. So it's significant that he basically has to do one for them so he can make one for him. And it's unbelievable that he was able to do both within the same year. Give us the dates, Matt. When, when did he film both movies? Jurassic Park was shot in the fall, in the summer and fall of 1992. Mm-hmm. And it came out June 11th, 1993. I believe he started shooting Schindler's List in like February of 1993 and it would come out in December of the same year. God, he is incredible at turning around movies in post-production. He was basically cutting uh, he was basically cutting Jurassic Park while he was in Poland on the set of Schindler's List. Well, like how much do you know about his editing process and how involved he is in it. For the most part, I always worked with the same editor, Michael Kahn, and I get the impression that they're very, very close and that they have a total rapport. And Michael Kahn was, of course, in Poland with Spielberg, basically cutting both movies kind of simultaneously, like finishing Jurassic Park and then preliminarily starting on Schindler's List at the same time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, from, from what I've, from the research that I've done, he basically was just going home from the set every night you know, in tears because of like how incredibly like emotional and personal the subject matter was to him and then having to cut his monster movie and staying up into the wee hours, making sure everything was perfect. So talk about a guy who can multitask and compartmentalize, right? Maybe it was a a well-deserved and necessary distraction while doing Schindler's List too. Yeah. And I also have also heard this is relatively well-known story, but apparently he would call Robin Williams during his darker moments on the set of Schindler's List so that he could, uh, his good friend could cheer him up. And Robin Williams would basically just do a stand-up routine over the phone to try to get Spielberg to giggle. And um, I actually went 
to go see a screening of Schindler's List at the Tribeca Film Festival uh, last month, two months ago, for the 25th anniversary. And Spielberg recounted the story where he said that Rod Williams would call him up and they would have a nice laugh. And that as soon as Rod Williams got Spielberg to laugh hard enough, he would just hang up the phone. <laughs> because <laughs> as a, you know, as a consummate stand-up comedian, he knew he wasn't going to get a, you know, whenever he got his biggest laugh, he would basically just end the set. All right, man, I guess we got to talk about Schindler's List infamously a film you had not seen up until a couple years ago right we recorded a podcast where we basically admitted to uh, our admitted to each other exactly that would that would have been what maybe three years ago three years ago and i think i've seen it three or four times since oh wow okay so you've embraced this film i've embraced the movie uh well because i think this might be the biggest misnomer about this movie is that it's uh is that it's like a slog or it's hard to watch or all but for a movie that has is is obviously about such dark subject matter it's fucked up to say it's like a really enjoyable movie to sit through there's more of an airiness to it than you would assume. I, I, it's hard to sort of explain a movie about su- uh, this subject matter like this, but it really is enjoyable. I think it's one of his most entertaining films. Yeah. Which is a weird word to use about this. Again, like you said, until you see it, you can't fathom what that means. Mm-hmm. Like, how can this be entertaining? And I really think so much of the efficaciousness of this film stems from the fact that you now have a filmmaker who has completely honed the ability to make an entertaining film, who just is choosing to focus on this subject matter, but he's not losing any of those chops, Yeah. right? He's making a piece of popular art that is dark and sad and heavy and serious and artful in ways that he, he had never attempted before. But it's also wildly entertaining. And the first hour especially is funny, fast paced, beautifully shot, romantic. There's a sequence early in the film that basically is um, it's, it's basically this very fast paced sequence where Ben Kingsley is wandering through all of these crowds trying to help each of his friends mm-hmm. uh, get their um, get their papers stamped, right? Yeah. And simultaneously, you're also watching Schindler as he collects all the funds that necessary for him to open up this enamelware. Yeah. And simultaneously, you're also seeing these people sort of like forced out of their houses, forced into this ghetto, forced into these different living situations. It's all propelled by this incredibly propulsive John Williams score, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just an entertaining sequence yeah it's, it probably kind of goes on for you know 10 11 minutes and it's just propulsive and fun and exciting and engaging mm-hmm. in the midst of this really 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 heavy movie that's going to get to be harrowing but at that time you're just like watching this filmmaker just like this is how you engage an audience this is what i know how to do really really well let me just in, you know let me just draw from all of my draw from my skill set to be able to make sure the audience knows this is still a movie, you know? This is still entertainment, technically. I think people have been unwilling to sort of admit that or, or, or they feel like it's it's doing the movie a disservice or the subject matter a disservice to admit that this movie is enjoyable. Like certain filmmakers, I think like Michael Haneke, who's the name of the name of the director who made the Shoah documentary, they, they think that it's a little flippant. They think that he's not quite being as respectful as he should be to the subject matter, whereas I feel that making an engaging film about the subject matter is almost the biggest respect you can give it, right? Because it's going to appeal to an audience in a way that's going to help them become invested in what's to come. It's also going to put people in the movie 
in a, in a way that if it was so cold and distant, they wouldn't be there. And, and just the way it's filmed, like the, the, the documentary handheld style that this movie is filmed is so different than anything he'd really done before. Looking back at his so-called adult movies in the past, like this is so much more gritty and realistic looking than those other movies like if he had filmed this movie like he filmed the color purple like it would have been a disaster probably i think that realism lends itself to some moments of of levity more so than if he was taking it super seriously in terms of like the way it was filmed and like staging every sequence like it was uh you know like he did with color purple or even empire of the sun and so i think i think that documentary feel really does this movie justice yeah the movie basically opens with um well it has a couple of kind of like semi-prologues including some stuff that's in color which is significant because the movie obviously plays with what's in black and white and what's in color but i really consider like the first real sequence to be the introduction of our title character and it might be my favorite steven spielberg sequence i don't want to get hyperbolic about Oof. it but the introduction of the character of Schindler and then his eventual sort of like manipulation of all the people at this supper club he goes to pretty much as perfect as a sequence gets as far as I'm concerned. Like the ability to tell you everything you need to know about this character who we're going to follow for the next three hours in this very short sequence, the way that he and Kaminsky cover him putting on his, you know, his uniform basically mm-hmm. and preparing to go out for the night and then the way that he works his way through this restaurant and basically inserts himself into the lives of all these SS officers mm-hmm. is just it's, it's extraordinary it's extraordinary in not just in economical storytelling but in aesthetics as well yeah. like the fact that this is the first film he worked on with Janusz Kaminski is crazy because it's still the best film that they've shot together it's still the best looking film of either of their careers it's just the shot of just like the roaming dolly shot moving past Liam Neeson's face with the cigarette held close to his face mm-hmm. with the the flash bulbs from the various photographers going off as he's just examining the room and the smoke rising up past his eyes. It's just, it doesn't get much more cinematic than that for me. Yeah. It's sexy, <laughs> for lack of a better word. It's just, it's cinematic. It's enjoyable. It's fun even. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the movie like starts off with that, grabs you like that before it goes into the harrowing handheld more neorealistic stuff mm-hmm. is I think it's significant. I think it's important that the movie sort of like takes it. It's obviously a long movie, but it's a movie that really understands the ebb and flow of the melodrama. It's interesting you brought up some other filmmakers who have accused this movie of being sort of flippant and, and not giving the respect it deserves to the subject matter, which uh, we understand is absolute bullshit knowing the <laughs> the personal torment that it took Steven Spielberg to even make this movie. You have to do it like that to engage the audience and to show them what you need to show them. It just works so well as a viewing experience because you you don't want it to be heartbreaking and and horrible throughout. And it gives the heartbreaking moments and the moments of sheer terror, these acts of just cruelty, so much more weight when you feel like it's in, in a realistic, somewhat like human place and you and you need to you don't want these SS SS characters to be sort of robotic one note characters you need to give them life and humanity to make the the, the acts of, of of evil all that more impactful right and that's why you basically give one of the most evil 
characters in the history of cinema over to an actor who basically embodies maybe one of the most interesting villains in the history of cinema, right? Ray Fiennes is... Uh... I personally believe that uh, Neeson, Kingsley, and Fiennes, I think these are the three best performances of their respective careers. But on any given day... I, I might be in a Neeson mood or I might be in a Kingsley mood or I might be in a Fines mood. And there are certain sequences you're just, you just look at Ray Fines. You're just like how the fearlessness behind taking on a character like that. This is what I wrote down. I wrote that like you have to have the biggest balls f- to take on this character and do what he did with it. Right. Yeah. It's crazy how much he looks like the actual guy. Lee Neeson is fantastic. Ben Kingsley is absolutely fantastic. But to me, the shining performance is is, is Ray Fiennes and, and the way they deal with this character. Yeah, like like I say, it's the, one of the most interesting portrayals of sheer evil that you'll see. But you still see the humanity within this person. Like for a movie about the Holocaust, you really need to implicitly understand how these people got to this place right yeah and this is a really good window into how someone could just follow these orders and do these acts and and be the the, the face of the uh, of the ss and the, and the nazis i'm not sure how much of it was steve zion's script or how much of it was ray fines really taking it into into his own but uh, what an incredible portrayal of, of, of one of the most evil Nazis out there. And it's so significant that he's instilled with the kind of humanity where you just can't look away from him, even as you're, you know, potentially horrified by the things, you know, like shooting shooting Jews off his balcony. Just indiscriminately with a, with a shooting him. Yeah, just indiscriminately, which kind of tells you everything you need to know about the character, that it's, it's just there's a sociopathology mm-hmm. to him where you just stop thinking of them as anything besides uh, fodder for tar- target practice. Yeah. Which is, I guess, how you, you know, the sort of mindset you would need to get into if you had to do that job, I suppose, if you had to be that kind of soldier for your army. But some of my favorite sequences in the film are are scenes that really delving into examining his humanity, like his conversations with Liam Neeson are like, it's, it's so interesting to think about the fact that it's a war movie and it's a Holocaust movie. And it's a film that deals with all of these like truly harrowing sequences of people being, you know, slaughtered, murdered, running around naked, you know, uh, in, in, incinerated. And yet some of, I feel the most effective, scariest, most involved sequences of the movie are just these conversations between him and Liam Neeson sitting out on the balcony after the party when he's all drunk and, and, uh, sort of like falling all over himself and Neeson trying to appeal to him, right? Yeah. Like the, pa- the, <laughs> yeah. the power speech, the speech about, you know, like that's not power. Power is when we have every justification to kill and we don't. Yeah. It's almost as, it's almost as if Schindler is saying, I know that this, I know I can help this guy. I know I can appeal to him. I know I can get him to turn around. I know I can get him to like not be this monster. Truly like they're friends. It's a, it's a bit of a love story between the two of them. <laughs> and he really thinks he can like, he can get to this guy, but this guy is gone. He's lost. He's, mm-hmm. he's already gone over to the dark side, right? Yeah. As much as Schindler tries to appeal to him. And then there's that sequence where Girth actually like takes a day <laughs> and tries to, tries to do some of the things that Schindler was talking about. He just, he just can't. Yeah. He's just, that's not him. <laughs> it doesn't you fit. Know, he's, he's a sociopath. But I love the idea that like Neeson leans in and says, that's not power. Power is when we have every, every justification to kill and we don't. That's what the emperor said. 
that's power. You know, he like really believes in what he's, he's a salesman, right? Mm-hmm. He really believes in what he's selling. He really believes in what he's trying to impart to this guy. He thinks he can get through to him. And I think it's just a, a towering sequence and it's just a really interesting um, sort of like sparring session between these two actors who were at the top of their game, but were certainly not household names, right? I no. mean, Spielberg... I mean, Kingsley of the three is a much bigger movie star than these two guys were at the time. Yeah, Kingsley's coming off a Oscar win. Yeah, Kingsley had already won for Gandhi, you know, 10 years earlier or whatever, 11 years earlier. So he's the biggest of the three. And yet you look at sequences like that and you're just like, oh, my God, I'm watching. Like, of course, we know now that Ray Fiennes and Liam Neeson are every bit as important as Spielberg already saw, mm-hmm. you know, in 1992. And just the the dynamics between those three characters. I mean, a mo- the movie really is all about the, that sort of like pivoting, you know, friend, those friendships and love stories, even if you will, between those three. Le- uh, Neeson being pulled, you know, towards the Germans or towards the SS or towards the Nazi concerns or being pulled towards the Jews on Kingsley's side. Mm-hmm. The way that his, his character is sort of being influenced or beguiled by either side is so fascinating to me. I mean, that's my my favorite scenes in the movie are really like Neeson and Ray Fiennes sitting out on the balcony talking, or of course Kingsley and Neeson either making the list or having you know having a drink together, having a toast together, or at the, of course at the end, you know, the scene that just absolutely makes me just completely lose it is when Kingsley tells him he's done a great thing, and then Neeson says, "I should have done more. I should have done more." Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wasted so much money. I mean, when he when he loses it, I lose it every single time. Yeah. It's really an, an unbelievable moment. Yeah, the last 30, 40 minutes of this movie are extremely emotional and almost almost hard to watch, um, even though it's, you know, triumphant at some points. And, you know, the, the, the full-color, you know, documentary survival, the, the survivors coming down at the very end with the rocks yeah. is just unreal. Yeah. And too much to handle, especially after... <laughs> being broken down for 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 three hours yeah i find this movie to be very cathartic like i I occasionally will put it on when i'm just i'm I'm like really pent up i'm just like i really need to just like let it all out like i well and gain some perspective too you know that's what always helps for me but something that will just cause me to like sort of like have an emotional flush where afterwards i would just like you know after watching this movie you feel like you know you've gone for a run or something you know like you feel like you've done something physical like you feel invigorated by the fact that you've had some sort of like a transcendent experience. So yeah, the, 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 the epilogue stuff, which apparently was conceptualized about halfway through the shooting of this movie is really such a masterstroke. Mm-hmm. Thinking about having the logistics of finding 128 people and flying them all to Israel. Yeah. <laughs> when you're in the middle of shooting a movie is phenomenal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 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 it's incredible. Just thinking about Spielberg's career up to this point, you know, he had sort of chased adult legitimacy, you know, and, you know, like I said, Color Purple and Empire of the Sun. You know, he gets his Oscar for this movie. He, he gets the the acclaim that he'd maybe been searching for. But it feels like when he made this movie, he sort of purposely, I mean, he, he made it in such a more gritty, handheld, documentary-style way that the idea of him looking for awards wasn't really in play when he made this movie like this movie was made as a passion project and he wasn't really looking for the acclaim and you know maybe even the universal didn't believe in it as much what allowed him to make this movie like this movie what got him to this point and made him make this movie in this way i mean i think there is something to be said for somebody wanting to forget what's come before or basically say can i do this without a net 
Mm-hmm. You know, like, can I perform this high wire act without a net? This is like the first film he'd made where he didn't storyboard 40% of it, something like 40, 50% of it is handheld. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's the first film he made that was shot in black and white, working with the cinematographer the, for the first time, um, working with a lot of uh, first time actors. And just saying, like, maybe wanting to, like, challenge himself to see if he could even pull something like this off. And also in a place personally where he was, you know, maybe for the first time in his life really embracing his his Judaism. Mm-hmm. You know, in love with this woman who he was really inspired by and Kate Capshaw, who was also, you know, willing to convert to Judaism or whatever. Like, wanting to make a film for his that would appeal to his mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's just, like, a lot of interpersonal stuff going on at this point. And probably coming off of Hook... And maybe even coming off of Jurassic Park to a certain extent, you probably start to have those moments of self-reflection where you think, like, what kind of a filmmaker am I? Yeah. Am I am I the guy who makes Hook in Jurassic Park, or am I the guy who could potentially make something like, Jura- or like uh, Schindler's List? Yeah. And, you know, he had had the rights to the book for over a decade, right? Yeah, something like that. Like, they basically, yeah, they basically optioned the book, and it just took him 10 years to finally get to a point where he realized he was a filmmaker who was mature enough to uh, to do this properly. Mm-hmm. Found himself in a place where he's like, I think it's time. I think it's time to do this. And luckily, all the elements came together. I think that it is not only his best film, but it is kind of like the pivotal moment in his career where just like all this stuff came together perfectly. And I don't think he was necessarily chasing Oscars, even though that's something that's clearly very important to him. And all of his heroes, you know, your, your David Leans or your Stanley Kubrick's for that matter, are also people who were, for better or for worse, chasing awards mm-hmm. throughout their careers. Mm-hmm. I think what's, what's truly miraculous about this particular project is I don't think he was doing it to chase awards. And yet, by sort of ignoring that as a, as a potential outcome, he ended up making the most critically acclaimed film of his career and won all of the awards. Yeah, I think that's what I'm getting at. Is is like, the, I think the act of him maybe throwing his hands in the air and being like, you know, I'm not chasing anything. I'm going to make this movie for me. I'm going to make this movie like as uh, as maybe differently in non Spielberg guys as I've ever made a movie with with this sort of subject matter. That is what allowed him to finally make the you know the masterpiece he had maybe been seeking. But you know after after a year like 1993, this is a guy who's got nothing left to prove. Yeah, after this movie, um, things get a lot different. Like like we said at the beginning of this conversation, this is truly the halfway point from here because you have nothing left to prove. What do you do? You start a freaking movie studio, right? Like, where else can you go from here? <laughs> Three times in Spielberg's career, he has had the highest grossing film of all time. He did it with Jaws in 1975. He did it with E.T. in 1982. He did it with Jurassic Park in 1993. He's yet to do it since because James Cameron has kind of taken over that mantle, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but it's like after you have the highest grossing film of all time and you win your Oscar in the same year, where, where do you go? What do you do? You know, you you start a movie studio, I suppose. And then I guess you make a Jurassic Park sequel. Well, technically you make a Jurassic Park sequel first and then you start the studio and then the studio wins a bunch of Oscars. And then the studio basically disintegrates and becomes kind of a shingle. We'll get into all of that. Needless to say that the drama doesn't stop with this film to do our due diligence matt we've already agreed that we're going to watch every single dreamworks movie of of all time starting with the peacemaker that's a fun fact that the peacemaker is actually the first released dreamworks movie directed by mimi leader yeah next up is going to be the lost world which is another crazy novelty and then we get into dreamworks proper and he's going to have another two movie year um, because he also made amistad the same year as the lost world I don't know. I mean, we will obviously get into our uh, official rankings here over the next few episodes, but 
is this is this his best film? Is this his masterpiece? Is this a better movie than Raiders? Is this a better movie than Jaws? Is this a better movie than Saving Private Ryan? I think Raiders is still my favorite. But again, is it is is Raiders? Yeah, favorite best, favorite or best. Is just your yeah. favorite. Yeah, because uh, I think Raiders is my favorite as well. But I think Schindler's List is his best. It's hard to argue that it's not his best. I mean, it's just it's important. You know, and yeah. it's hard to get around that. And Raiders of the Lost Ark, as great as it is, is not important. So if you're a time capsule one of his movies and show it to a future generation, it'd be Schindler's List, for sure. When he showed up for the Q&A at the Tribeca Film Festival recently, and he apparently had not seen the film in like 25 years. He said he hadn't seen it since the press tour um, in 1993. And, you know, I believe him. The The interviewer just said, you know, how do you feel? What What are your emotions right now? Like, what what do you want to say after this experience? Because he literally like, sat there with us and watched the entire thing. And he said, I'm just extraordinarily proud of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was just all he had to say. Just like, um, he said, my heart is full. And I'm just, I'm just very, very proud of this film. As well he should be. If you ask him what his best movie is, I'm sure he'd say Schindler's List. I'm sure List. that's what he'd say. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end, Matt. Um, Truly. Yeah. Steven Spielberg, part three, oeuvre. Uh, we'll be back with uh, the birth of DreamWorks and uh, his next batch of movies. Uh, can we commit to soonish, Matt? I'm ready when you are. Let's start it right now. Okay, let's do it. Let's we're, press pause, pause and then let's get into the Lost World. Because <laughs> Lord knows we both watched Lost World recently, right? I'm looking forward to the next chapter, pal. I'll see you there. Yeah.